0: This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com.
1: When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan.
0: Well, no used to sit and wonder why, babe. It don't matter anyhow. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe, if you don't know by now. When your rooster crows at the break of dawn, look out your window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm traveling on. Don't think twice. It's all right. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, One Song at a Time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about the classic Immortal don't Think Twice, It's All Right from 1963's The Free Willing Bob Dylan is academic Pam Thurshwell. Hi, Pam.
1: Hi, Rob.
0: Now, I said your name right, right? I was so scared I was going to get it wrong. You said it right?
1: You got it right. Thurshwell oh, is the way to God. go. Yeah. All <laughs> right, great. We're off to
0: a good start. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we said we're, so we're, we're going to be talking about Don't Think Twice, one of you know, Bob Dylan's most enduring classics and that is saying something Uh, but before we get to all that Pam I want to start at the beginning which is how did you become a fan of Bob in the first place
1: well you know like many of the people who I'm sure are on your podcast it's a long long story it goes back to older brothers for me actually Um, and I had one my older brother Adam was a a complete fanatic but what I mostly remember they're they're my brothers are eight years older than me they're twins actually Um, but they used to he used to play greatest hits volumes one and two all the time when he was in high school and I was like seven or eight at that point um, and the only record player we had was in the living room and especially the first thing I remember actually is Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35 really loudly <laughs> kind of blasted um, I'm almost sure that's where I learned the word stoned actually but and, and at that point I remember thinking this is a weird song like I don't think I understand this and what's wrong with his voice and um, but then I got into it, and of course, I loved like a Rolling Stone and Mr. Tambourine Man and all all the things on that Greatest Hits Volume One. I remember first, but the one that really got to me was Positively Fourth Street. That was absolutely one of my favorites, and I think there was something about that "You've Got a Lot of Nerve" or whatever that just just hit me in a way. Um, and then when I started to buy my own albums as a teenager. I mean, I obviously, like everybody does, I went beyond Greatest Hits, Volume 1 and 2. And the ones I remember really listening to in high school were Blonde on Blonde, Highway 61, and Bringing It All Back Home. That particular period, maybe Blood on the Tracks, or maybe I came to that later. Um, I, I, rem- I was thinking about this, because it's going on the show. I think the very first album I bought of his when it came out was Infidels. So that would have been mm, 1983. Okay. Um, and then I remember buying Oh Mercy in 1989. And to be honest, I'm the kind of Dylan fan who didn't really buy any of the other, you know, when, when things came <laughs> out, I would, I would get to them years later or think, oh, that's kind of interesting, but for the later stuff, until Rough and Rowdy Ways, when suddenly I was like, oh my God, this is, I remember, you know, everything I've, I loved about him was totally back. Um, but I, I, I came late to things like Desire and Street Legal, Planet Waves later when I think, and I never really connected to his religious period stuff until the bootleg albums, actually. Mm-hmm. So the I, and a lot of the early stuff I didn't know at that point when I started listening to the bootlegs volume one to three. But then when I heard something like Every Grain of Sand off of that, I thought, oh, there was something I was probably missing about the whole... Mm-hmm whole Mm -hmm. religious period too. So, so that's a kind of, you know, a kind of rough run through my on and off Dylan. Um, But those, those, those ones that hit you when you're, when you're like eight or nine and you first hear a song and you're just kind of like, what, what is happening there? And I remember that especially (laughs) with Positively Fourth Street.
0: No. So when you're, when your brother, Adam, right. You said it was Adam. Uh, He's playing the records. Is the other brother, Is it working on him at all or not? not? Yeah,
1: no, no. Eric Eric was into the music too, but uh, it was Adam's sort of obsession
0: that (laughs) I
1: really remember. Eric liked it as well. Um, And there was something about, there was a point when their friends from high school would kind of come over. And I was like the little, like eight years younger sister, kind of hanging around, trying to hear what they were talking about. And the Dylan was almost always Dylan or the who was like the soundtrack, you know, of what of what was happening. And I just remember I kind of associate it with like there's like cooler, older boys who have who are into something that I want to know about, you know.
0: (laughs) Now, what what was your parents reaction to this? Because I I will say. I generally, when I was getting into Bob, I wasn't subjecting people to it because I knew it was a hard sell for some people. So I wasn't playing it in, say, the living room record. But I know that's all you had. But at the same time, your brother is like, everyone's going to listen to this because I want to. I know.
1: It's it's kind of crazy to me that we didn't have like that. They didn't have a record player up. You know, like in our bedrooms i I never had that either. It would always be we just i think they just let us take over the living room and play what we <laughs> wanted because that was my whole looking back on it now it wasn't until later you know, and then everything changes once you 've got you know headphones and your own like te- whatever the the- wa- when you 've got a walkman right? and mm-hmm. you you've got your mixtapes and everything, but for the longest time, it was just like albums are albums blasting in the in the living room, so the, I think they were very understanding i mean my my father and both of my parents but my father especially kind of comes from a sort of like he was very into sort of folk music and Pete Seeger was one of his heroes and you know so they got it and they they actually they actually lived in New York City during the early late 50s um, and early 60s and I was like why didn't you go down why didn't you just make it downtown (laughs) you
0: know you you were right there mom and dad
1: I know, you were there practically there. So.
0: <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's that's fantastic. Have you seen him live?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have seen I have got to say I am not one of the kind of bobcats who I've not seen him thousands of times and can do lots of comparisons. I really wish I'd seen him recently and I, I'm regretting not just getting onto the bandwagon there. I think I've seen him about Five times total, maybe four. Um, by far, the best time I saw him was at the Brixton Academy in 1995, when Elvis Costello opened for him, and Elvis wow. Costello was another one of my total heroes. And so it was like, you know, my my two heroes on stage together. Costello just seemed so happy to be there, and I remember them duetting on "I Shall Be Released." and i i remember actually at the time because you know it's just you're standing and it's a it's that kind of crowd and it's not that huge at least my in my memory it's it's not enormous and i was just like pinching myself saying i'm actually here you know this is amazing um so that was probably the best time i saw him um and then i've i've seen him a few other times The the one I think the first time I saw him was at the Mann Music Center in Philadelphia. You must Mm -hmm. you must have been yeah know it well yeah um yeah um and I remember it was 1988 um so that wouldn't have been I don't know like past his I think it was 1980 maybe it was earlier than that anyway um. It was, we, we both, like the friend I went with, we both had really kind of low expectations because we'd heard <laughs> he's, you know, you never know what you're going to get. And, um, but at that point, and I, I hate to say this, I feel really kind of bad. It's like I'm exposing myself now, but I really couldn't, I was not into his religious stuff at all. And neither was my friend. And we were like, well, if he just, if we just get through it and he doesn't do, gotta serve somebody, <laughs> like, then it'll be like a, and of course, he did. Got he did. You know, got to serve somebody. And um, we were like, ah, you know, it was so. It was. It, there were parts of it that I, I know were good too. But I've never been like a Dylan live person. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I have this thing like, if you've seen someone once and it was transcendent, I'm always worried to see them again. You know, I'm a little <laughs> bit like, what if it's not as good? I think that was my Bri- my Brixton Academy one was that. So okay, it,
0: right, right. that's fantastic I don't want to ruin this experience we're so lucky to have it
1: I mean I I remember because I went I went another time in London with and I took my husband along who's a Dylan fan but he was he'd never seen Dylan live, and it was one of those times where you couldn't really recognize it you know where you've had that thing where if you're with someone who's not going to get into the whole experience totally and he, you just can't recognize the songs it's it's a, it can be a little hard on mm-hmm. on them too so
0: yeah <laughs> I, yeah i have I have been there, and that is why I don't take mm-hmm. those people to shows anymore. <laughs> like I just want to enjoy it myself right. I, know. I just <laughs> want to go with my my fellow. Bobcats and just, you know, I know we're all having the kind of same time, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, the funny thing now is, like, I feel like I would be that now. I feel like I I know – I feel like I've been – well, I've been talking about Dylan Moore, thinking about Dylan Moore in in various ways and actually – I should, I, you know, I wish I'd gone to see him live. I'm not sure I'm going to have the chance now, um, but I, I think I would have gotten over my sort of like, why can I not tell what this song is thing, you know, by now.
0: So. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. fantastic. So, okay. Now you mentioned a couple of songs there that were sort of, you know, really transformative to you, Rainy Day Women or Positively street, Fortier- But you picked mm-hmm. Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. So I'm curious, why did, I mean, I look- who doesn't want to talk about this song? Because it's a masterpiece. It's one of the early masterpieces. And it's, 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 it, it was a huge song at the time. And it has stayed huge in in the popular culture for 60 years. So it's not like anyone needs to really have a, an excuse to talk about this song. But why did you want to talk about this? one?
1: So the, uh, the real reason, the, the kind of thing that has spurred me off was this kind of like wonderful experience I had with my daughter about a, a month or two ago, right before – you know you got in touch about this i came down for breakfast and my 17 year old daughter was playing it and i was like you know i was super happy normally i mean we have a lot of music in common like we both love like taylor swift and lord and she's very into rap and things like she's in, she's got very eclectic tastes but I never heard her play Dylan before. And, you know, I was really happy about it, but I had to pretend it wasn't a big deal. So I didn't scare her off. You know, you have to, I was like, Oh, that's a good song. Where did you get that from? And actually the answer was that it came, I usually things she gets things from TikTok, but this time it came from this TV show we'd been watching called station 11, um, which is a kind of post-apocalyptic, really like, Really good show, actually. Really interesting. HBO, kind of, right? To, it was, yeah. I think I think so. I can't can't remember. Um, it was written pre-COVID, but it's about a pandemic that kind of kills off lots of people, and there's this traveling Shakespeare group, and it's sort of about what matters in life after a pandemic. And it, it uses posi- it, not positively It uses um, "Don't Think Twice" really brilliantly, right at the end of the first episode where it's it becomes a kind of going on the road song because the two two main characters are leaving this apartment they've been holed up on for many many days it's a real traumatic situation but the song is so beautiful anyway I was just so happy that she had picked up on it and I was thinking um what an amazing song it was so I would have at some other point I think I ran some other songs by you like you know in in a sense I've always loved it, but it hasn't been like at the top of my list of my absolute mm. favorites. And if someone hadn't done like up to me, or she's your lover now, or when I paint <laughs> my masterpiece, there's all these others I could have could have chosen. But at the but I I just got interested in thinking about also about like how Dylan songs are used in in you know can be used really well like in movies or TV shows and kind of. It just hit another generation in a, in in the same way, same or different way um, that they, you know, that they did to me listening in our living room in the 80s, you know, so.
0: Yeah, that's something but, I've noticed yeah. has, has changed over time is that, you know, up until not that long ago, you would never hear a Bob Dylan song on a TV show. They just couldn't afford mm-hmm. it. Uh or right. and surely and and you know occasionally in movies, but still not that much and then, in just the last fifteen years, I think I've heard don't think twice on half a dozen television shows, and it just Yay. i mean I don't even know exactly what that means in terms of the how t v shows are budgeted I guess they they just are willing to spend more money on songs than they used to, but all of a sudden it's like. It's on, you just mentioned this, this station 11 show and I've heard it on Mad Men and it was on Friday Night Lights and The Walking Dead for all, you know, of all places. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it was on Ted Lasso. I mean, it's, it's, it's a song that, that obviously showrunners really like, and they're, you know, most showrunners are probably in their forties or fifties. So they're coming to it even as a second or third generation, but man, it's Bob is just licensing this thing all over the place now.
1: Maybe he's given a discount or something for Don't Maybe. Think Twice. That's so so interesting. I mean, the one that I was I found myself um going back to watch was have you seen this movie Dogfight? Do you did you? I know this? many
0: years ago. I know the River Phoenix uh, Lily Lily Taylor film. I it was it's been many decades, but I have seen it. And it's a very very it's a great movie.
1: It's a wonderful movie and it's sort of it's just really Poignant the way it uses don't think twice because it's actually, I can't remember the the word, whatever, interdi- diegetic, whatever. She puts on the album when they're having this very awkward love scene and she's the folkie and he's going off, you know, to the Vietnam War the Vietnam War the next day, you know, and he's like they're they're kind of opposites, but she puts it on and it becomes the kind of, you know, the 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 sort of losing her virginity song or whatever. It's it's got it's it's the but it's. I was thinking how funny it is as a like. It's so beautiful and yet it's so kind of cruel. The saw it. Mm-hmm. it, it can be. It can work in a whole bunch of different places, and it, it works really brilliantly there. Actually, um,
0: that's part of the angle of dogfight is the the, the inherent cruelty in the premise. Because anyone who hasn't seen the film, it's a, River Phoenix is about to go off to war, and him and his war buddies make a bet to who can find basically the ugliest girl to sleep with. And River Phoenix picks on Lily Taylor, which, you know, is not absurd because Lily Taylor is not that in any way. She's quite beautiful uh, in every conceivable way. But that is the premise of the... And of course, obviously, River Phoenix learns the error of his ways. But that that is something I, I wanted to, to talk about, is that I've noticed when this song gets used, often it's not really the lyrics I think too much. It's generally the melancholy Mm. in Dylan's voice. That is what's being used. And it's almost like the, the lyrics are sort of indifferent to the use of it, which is, you know, that's unusual to sort of like say, all the the Dylan lyrics are put to the side, but I've noticed that almost always when I've heard it in some use, it's always either the the, the traveling sense. That's the stuff they Mm. lean on or it's the melancholy in his voice. Not so much that it's even a relationship song that you're supposed to glean in, in that given use of wherever it's appearing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, 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 that's why it can work in, in so many sort of different ways. It's that, um, you know, the, when the rooster crows at the, when your rooster crows at the break of dawn, it's got that kind of going on the, the, the road traveling aspect to it. Um but it also, it's just like the incredible kind of melody seems to sort of belie the, the like, you know, um, the, like the ending actually mm-hmm. and the, the whole sort of sense of like, and I am, there's something else I'm really interested in and kind of love about Dylan is how mean he can be at the same <laughs> time as it, it, it riles me as a feminist to like listen to, him, you know, at, at times. But it's. I think he's he's amazing. If you want someone for that cutting, you know, if you want a really great breakup, um, a, a, a song to listen to after someone has left you, it's a good one too. <laughs> you know, so it can it can fill a lot of different um different needs. <laughs> so. It's very
0: passive aggressive, you know. But it's a, it's I also a, it's found a-
1: myself. Just kind of going, um, really kind of thinking about Dylan in the early, uh, the early 60s. And I've always been interested in Suze Rotolo just because she just seems like this wonderful person. Um, And uh, she comes off so well in No Direction Home. Um, But I got her, I got her, uh, her memoir. So I, and I found myself. Reading about it, um, reading about all of those days, which just sounds sort of amazing. But um, the line about when the rooster crows actually um, is, uh, comes from um, a, a, that they used to actually go by a rooster that was crowing in New York City. So uh, let me read this out to you just because I think it's great. It's so the chicken coo, This is from her thing. They're, they're hanging out in Greenwich Village. She writes the chicken coops on Thompson street in the village were well maintained. The chickens were healthy, but not destined to live long. Obviously the customer picked out the chicken. It was taken in the back where it was quietly and covertly killed, defeathered by scalding in hot water and then butchered as the customer desired. When Bob and I stayed up all night, which was not unusual for us if we were in the vicinity of the South village on our path towards home, we heard the roosters crowing at the break of dawn. (laughs) So,
0: Wow. <laughs> and
1: I just, like, the thing I thought that was great about that, as well as just, oh, that's what it is, just like, you don't think of the song as set in New York City, right? I mean, if you, when you hear that line, you think, oh, it's another one of those, you know, Bob out in the countryside songs yeah. and the woman is there. And and instead, it's like right in the middle of New York City, you've got the rooster. And I just, I kind of love that.
0: I wonder how it would read to somebody i mean i obviously if you're dating bob dylan you're dating anyone who's a musician who's <laughs> writing their own songs all of taylor's boyfriends are going through this is mm-hmm. use using something so personal from your life as grist for your material i mean obviously if bob dylan writes you a beautiful love song saying how awesome you are you're gonna love it but when he writes something like this which as i mentioned i think is passive aggressive i mean it's yeah. you know you're you're writing this song This three minute, 40 second song uh, saying, "Eh, you know, you really hurt me, but don't worry about it. Well, you're clearly bullshitting me because you are worrying about because you're writing a song about what are you talking about? You know, and then to, to have something so personal from your life, even if it is something like the chicken moment put into a song. I wonder. I mean, again, she must have been okay with it because she stayed with him long after this song. But I don't know. I mean. I've occasionally over the years mentioned something in my personal life on a podcast and not everybody is super chill with that. <laughs> and that that's just a podcast, let alone a record made for public consumption. Mil- potentially millions of people are going to hear.
1: I know. I mean, I i think she, it, it just sounds to me that she was like both incredibly forgiving. I mean, you see that in no direction home. Yeah. They're all of like, the women are so great in that right They're I mean, both Joan <laughs> Baez and her are so great. And it must have been kind of hellish. And, you know, um, but also, like, everybody's kind of forgiving of Dylan. And if you ended up and don't think twice it's all right, like, if I ended up and don't think twice it's all right, I'd be like, hell, I'm in, I don't care, you know, (laughs) how I'm being represented. I'm in this song that's going to last. For hundreds and hundreds of years, um, and is so brilliant. But she seems especially—I just that. I mean, the memoir is—it int- doesn't kind of tell you a lot of a lot of what you might want to know if you really want to know the details. She's very sort of respectful of it of their relationship, but it gives you so much kind of amazing background of what it was like to be in Greenwich Village, and then it sort of drops in these things like that. Um, so yeah, no, I imagine Dylan would have been hellish to. To go out with at any point, really, um, no, no question about that.
0: There are lots of people who, when I see some documentary about them or something, and I will say to my wife, "This person, uh, as the subject of a documentary or the subject of a movie, is really fun." But man, I'm glad I'm not in their personal life because mm. it's probably torture, you know. And I can, I can enjoy it from afar, but I don't want to spend any personal time with them because that just sounds that sounds really rough. And so, yeah, obviously. Uh, Suze was a very, I mean, anyone who could still talk to Bob Dylan after writing Ballad and plenty D is a very, yeah. very forgiving person. I mean, you, that's. I mean, <laughs> that's...
1: really, really, that's sort of a, a limit case. But actually the ones, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, and this is me, I don't usually go in for the like strict biographical readings, like it's all, it's got to be all about specific people. But in this case, I kind of was going down that line a little, is that When he, what he writes, other than Ballad and Blame D is sort of an exception, but things like Boots of Spanish Leather and this, like, Suze sounds like a real person in these songs. You know, it's like a, it's like, obviously he's dissing her, he's angry and this, but, um, you know, the, the power balance sounds, interestingly they're interconnected in ways whereas the songs I think he write sometimes writes for Sarah or seem to be about late l- later songs of his are so she's just a goddess or kind of a mythical figure you know it's mm. not I, I feel there's something that's kind of real in these songs that he the, these early songs that he writes for Seuss does that I don't know what do you think of that yeah
0: I mean I you know they said these are these are people I mean you don't Get into a relationship with somebody who's he's already Bob Dylan at this point mm-hmm. uh, that, that without knowing that that's kind of what's going to happen. I mean, it's, there's something to me about the, the it's so funny. The chicken thing is so it seems so minor, right, because it seems like such a minor mm-hmm. detail. But I also think in a lot of ways that it's that stuff that is the real in some ways, the, the engine of the of your relationship is those small details that you mm. share with someone. Not, I mean, it's, you know, anyone can write a song about, oh, you're the most beautiful angel ever. Oh, okay, mm. that's, that's nice, but it's a little generic, but it's very specific to say, I'm mentioning this thing that only you and I did when we were in New York, and you're right. It sounds like a song written by a guy who's doing the Woody Guthrie bit, like he's got mm-hmm. the guitar strapped right. to his back and he's jumping on it, and yet he's he specifically mentioned this very urban moment uh, with him and with him and Suze, you know, it's just, it's just kind of amazing. Um, the context of the the song of when he recorded it, I mean, is I, to me, interesting is that he, you know, he does the first record and it doesn't do any business at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it, it's mostly covers and he's kind of really leaning into the Woody Guthrie thing and it has song to Woody on it, of course, but it doesn't mm-hmm. do any business. And Columbia records is looking at John Hammond, uh, with a little bit of a skeptical eye like oh, really this kid you know you're really going to you know and John Hammond was not putting his career on the line that's that's too 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 dramatic but he was definitely taking a flyer out on this kid and right. they do the first record and it sells like 600 copies and it goes nowhere and it's like all right there's another he's going to do another record you got to de- this one's got to deliver and boy howdy He <laughs> I mean, doesn't deliver I mean, a single record that features Blown in the Wind, Masters of War, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. I mean, that, not only are they all masterpieces, they're all masterpieces in different ways. Mm. And it's just, I mean, talk about, you know, just bam, you know, and setting the tone of like, no, 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 I'm the guy. Because you think about Blown in the Wind, like, okay, well, this guy is the next you know, social justice hero right. that we're going to have, and hard rain's going to fall. But then he also writes "Girl from the North Country," and he writes "Don't Think Twice," which are he can write personal just as much as he can write social anthems. And it's just like it's it, it's almost like it sets the template for his career to this day. That this record,
1: yeah, it's, I I do think it's astonishing when I was going back to look at the track listing because. You know, I never, like, listen to albums anymore. You just listen to, you know, your playlists of all of Dylan. And I was thinking, like, wow, I was thinking exactly what you were saying. But also, it's like, don't think Twice is of those songs. They're all um, unbelievable. Um, but it's the one that's, like, pointing forward towards him mm-hmm. in some ways to what he's going to be doing with, um, you know, in terms of the more personal songs, um yeah like it's all over now, baby blue. There's also the kind of leaving he's always leaving, mm-hmm. you know, but the, he's always leaving. but those kinds of songs that he's he's gonna kind of look more towards later um
0: yeah, um, he takes the the melody from this song. Is from a traditional song called, Who's gonna buy your chickens when I'm gone? To oh, there's the chicken right. thing again. Uh, <laughs> and then which, which he Dylan learned thanks to Paul Clayton. And then Paul Clayton borrowed the tune for his song, Who's gonna buy you ribbons when I'm gone? So not only did Dylan cop the melody, he actually copped two lines from Paul Clayton's song for his own song, which is just the, the, the chutzpah on this guy. <laughs> I
1: know yeah, the chutzpah is the word. You know, I mean, it's it's all the like I, that's what i i i know i i keep going back to um to the Scorsese film, but I just think you just see it there where like, he's stealing from everyone and everyone's kind of happy about, it, you know, like, no, everyone's <laughs> like, I've been a part of this, this, this guy, like the the records you stole from me might've inspired God knows what, you know, it's like, you're, you're part of the, the, the sort of the process of Bob Dylaning there. there. Um, and I, I kind of like, like the whole, the, I guess there's the Dave Van Ronk thing, right. With, um, House of, the House of the Rising Sun. House of the Rising
0: Sun. I yeah. <laughs> Van Ronk has the best laugh in the world. He that does. Raspy, the guy that's smoked way too many cigarettes. But yeah, you're right. Everyone is at this point. It's 50 years on, and it's like, what's to be mad about anymore? But I mean, mm-hmm. imagine being this 22 year old kid coming in from out of town, and people are like teaching him stuff, and he's like, oh, I'll just steal that and make my own thing, and I'll get it on a mm-hmm. Columbia record, which now. He's going to become the the version that everyone's going to know, and you're like, oh, all right, well, thanks, Bob. Uh,
1: <laughs> I felt this. I, I, it was. I can't remember what time. When whenever we come back from England, where I live, to to the states or Philly, where I'm, I'm from, but we always, my kids love New York. We all love New York, so we always try to if possible, get in a little trip to New York. But a, a couple of years ago, I found a Dave Van Ronk street in the village. And I, I don't know if you mm. see like a street has been named after him. And I was like, at least someone's, not, it, it's one of those really tiny streets. I'm sure it's, you know, it comes up in a chronicle or he must've lived there. Or Dylan lived nearby, but I was thinking, yeah, at least someone is remembering Dave Van Ronk, you know? <laughs> <'Cause, yeah.
0: laughs> So uh, the song, after the the initial verse, the song goes on. He says, it ain't no use to turn on your light, babe, a light that I never knowed. Ain't no use to turn on your light, babe. I'm on the dark side of the road. Still, I wish there was something you would do or say to try to make me change my mind and stay. We never did too much talking anyway. Don't think twice. It's our first of all. I love the if you want to consider it. um lascivious you can the line about we never did too much talk in any way you're like okay i kind of know what that means but there is as i said earlier there's this this passive aggressiveness to it which is the i wish there was something you would do or Mm -hmm. say to trying to make me change my mind to say why is it up to this part why don't you make that Why he's acting like he is completely powerless in this situation
1: it is i mean and it's interesting it doesn't like i love this song in a way that something like mama you've been on my mind kind of bothers me because even though it's also like, it's a brilliant song, the power dynamic seems much more like the guy's totally in control of it. Whereas what I find here is that what you're calling passive aggressive. um, And it is, it's, you know, it's a little hilarious. He keeps trying to be mean, but actually he really wants her to Mm -hmm. do something or say something to try to make him to stay. Um, And so I feel like the song is, is like, I don't know, ambivalent or conflicted or in a way that you don't always get in Bob songs, you know, um, where the woman seems like it has to be either entirely enthralled to him or he's out the door. I think there's a going back and forth here.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he, okay. Some of his love songs, like you said, that are where, um, he is seemingly giving the woman again. It's not necessarily a woman, but from we know of Bob, it, it is probably a yeah. <laughs> woman that he's talking to. Uh, he seems to give her all the power, and but that's not that's you know that's like that not totally fair because mm. she doesn't have all the power. He has some of the power by saying right. you have all the power in the relationship. You're kind of setting up this dynamic that's a little unfair on the on to the other person. You're giving them all the control, and it's like well that. That person isn't responsible for everything. You're the one here. No. You you can decide. Again, you can decide to stay if you want as well. Now, again, he's sort of saying you can make a gesture that might suggest that you really care. But, again, it, there is this, this kind of like I feel sorry for me kind of thing that yeah. I, think it, I think in other people's hands. And we can talk about the covers of the song because there's been mm. a million of them. But in other people's hands, it could come across kind of ghastly but Bob seems to kind of be able to get away with it in some ways
1: I know I mean I think he really gets away with it at least he gets away with it for me in this song and like but you're right I mean it's it's you know there's a way of reading it just like your response you know I'm not going to make any effort here um whereas I'm reading it is it's more he actually it's at least he's sort of he's conflicted about it. Like that on some level, some part of him doesn't really want to leave. Um I mean, the line, like I once loved a woman, a child I'm told is mm. also like that, the, the, that's like, you know, when, when he met Suze, he was like 20, but she was like 17 and, you know, she was really young, but she was also like much more sophisticated than him in a lot of ways. Like yeah. she knew about art and she had a sort of, the theater and she had this sort of new yorker knowledge um she was a red diaper baby which mean her parents were communists she had all like she had sort of <laughs> ins to things and so she was actually quite um sophisticated to his more kind of playing the kind of you know the the, the guy who'd come in from the country from, bumpkin from, kind uh, of thing yeah country bumpkin is the word i'm looking for but so there's i but so i think there's a real kind of dynamic that's interesting i mean he was not Bob Dylan. I mean, he was, he called himself Bob Dylan, but he was not Bob Dylan, capital B, capital D in the way we think of him now, when they met, he was starting out. So it's, there is a sense that it's, 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 it feels kind of complicated in here to, to me. And that line, I mean, I gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. And like, like, you know, first of all, again, I'm reading way too biographically, but, but I don't think that was really the dynamic. Like she goes off to Italy for six months and thinks like, I can't deal with this relationship. I'm going to stay here. Um, he was, you know, of course, getting more famous, but, and I, I think there was always a sort of more of a kind of back and forth between them in terms of the power dynamics, so- I don't know. Maybe I'm reading it the way I want to read it. Cause I love the song so much. Um. Well, I think
0: that's how, it's always the way it happens. But yeah, that exactly. line, I gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. That, that line has always, it, it's a powerful line, but that's the line where I always, I think I kind of just squint my eyes a little bit at it because it mm. is a little like, uh, you know, it's kind of blaming her a little bit, you know, yeah. like, Oh, I, I, I did what I could, but she wanted my soul. Like, All right. Okay. Mm. You know, <laughs> it's a little, but again, it's, it's, It's the performance that he's putting across on it. And again, and the melody, as you said, is so beautiful that it seems to almost uh, buffet these slightly, maybe overly, you know, over the top words a little bit. Um, I do like the way that, you know, very early in his career, he's already changing the viewpoint of the song Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. he's he's talking to this person, but then he's talking about her and Mm -hmm. it seems to be, Sometimes it's present tense, other times it's the relationship is already in the past. He's already yeah. you know, the second record, he's already doing what he talked about uh in on Blood on the Tracks, which is jumping around in the timeline and sort of looking at it from a grander point of view. And here he is. He's this is side one of the second record. He's already kind of kind of mastered it
1: yeah no it's it it does have a lot of that i was i was thinking cuz i was listening to your, that i can't remember now which ones i've listened to on your podcast but was thinking someone else was talking about that may you know with you about the different moments where he's changing viewpoints and 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 he does do that a lot but it really makes for a very sort of sophisticated way of of getting into the story actually. And then, I mean, the other thing I was thinking about when you get to the, you just kind of wasted my precious time, which Mm. really is, it could really be, and in some ways is the equivalent of um, what a drag it is to see you, you know, like it's, it's that it's like, bam, I am putting the knife in right at the end. Um, But it's still, it's just, it's, there's something about the melody that just, it's, it's mean, but it also it it fits into another kind of story it feels sad too um
0: yeah if he he had a fixed uh the tune from other some other songs on this record like down the highway if it had been much more spare it probably Mm. would have been unbearable because it's that line that line especially you kind of wasted my precious time is just really nasty and yet it doesn't it just doesn't sound that the whole, the whole feeling you get from the song is melancholy, not mm-hmm. anger. Like th- that's one of the reasons I go on and on about how much I dislike ballad in plain D. Cause to me, ballad yeah. in plain D is just ugly and nasty. And it doesn't, to me doesn't leave you with anything other than, Gee, don't, don't get me involved in that. I didn't want to hear right. about this, but right. this just has that kind of more mellow again, melancholy tone, which is what we were talking about earlier is that when it's used in other, for for TV shows or movies, it's almost always just going for the melancholy. I remembered hearing it in an episode of Mad Men, and that's you're talking mm. like 2007, so that was still early to use a a, a very famous song like that in a TV mm-hmm. show. And I remembered hearing, you know, that's when you're when you're a Dylan fan, right? And you're watching a <laughs> piece of media. All you need is about two notes, and you're like, like huh, right. you're like, you know, it, so you know immediately what it is. And I, there's a scene where it's, it's about uh, Don Draper and his wife are basically going to break up and he's mm-hmm. sitting down at the, he's sitting on the stairs and he realizes what's going on. And all of a sudden you hear the, just the, the beginnings of the guitar pickings and you're like, Oh my God, they're using don't think twice. And it's that the, the lyrically, it's not at all from Don Draper's point of view right. or from his wife's point of view. It's just going for the wasted effort the wasted time of the relationship that this thing that we put all this effort into has fallen apart irreparably and it's that's what they're going for and so to me you know for how much as i analyze dylan's lyrics on the show because i don't have a way to speak to the the music the musicianship of it as much it's amazing to think that so much of this song is that tune which again he stole from another song anyway
1: yeah but that's yeah no I was thinking as you were talking I mean I I, rem- I couldn't remember where on Mad Men it was used I love Mad Men too um, yeah yeah but it, just amazing show amazing show about the the fifties and the sixties but the um but it is you know like it, it, I I just was thinking Dylan and Don Draper have the kind of changing their whole, their name, everything mm-hmm. about that, you know, kind of in, in common somehow. And, you know, Draper's just going to have to sort of move along too at that point. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how it can be used in all these different kinds of contexts. Um, but I'm like you, I'm a lyric person too. I mean, I'm a, mm. I am i do not know, I don't play any instruments. I so I, Tend to talk about lyrics when I, yeah. I, I, you know, focus on them as well. Um,
0: in, in that show, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I mean, the the character that John Hamm is playing is Don Dreer, but that's not his real name. That's an identity that he has assumed, and it's kind of funny. I mean, we were just talking about that Bob is from the sort of rural part of Minnesota, and then he comes to New York and he immediately sort of inserts himself in this more. You talked about like Sue's came from the sort of more sophisticated literate bohemian type existence and he's sort of transforming himself into something he's not and that's what don draper does because don draper the his original identity was like a farm kid comes from a very Mm. rural i mean his dad gets killed when he gets kicked by a horse and he comes to new york and wears these dapper suits and he's all of a sudden becomes the utter um the example of like new york sophistication Mm -hmm. and the problem with that show is the idea is Yes, you've, you're putting on this identity, but it's going to catch up with you because that's not who you really are, and that's what you know ends up leading partly to the the, the ruinous relationship that Don Draper has. Interesting mm-hmm. with Dylan, though, people know it's a fake. Like when he meets when he meets people, yeah. they know this is all like these. He's constantly discarding these masks, and you're kind of you know that going in, and maybe that has something to do with kind of what we were talking about in the No, no Direction Home movie, where these people. Don't seem to be mad about it anymore because they kind of went into it knowing this guy is going to change his identity to suit him and I'll be part of his life in some ways for as long as it suits him. And then he might discard me because he's ready to move on to be the next Bob Dylan. And you know what? I knew that going in. I bought the ticket. I takes my chances and that's okay.
1: It's that it that that is really true, but like the one moment in the Suze Rotolo I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right um, free will in time, we're, we're kind of early on, but she's she's they're, they're pretty far into her, their relationship is what it seems to me, and she still doesn't quite know what his real name is, right? Like, there's this (laughs) sort of sense that he's so hidden, even from the people he's really involved with and love with, you know, and, and there's, there's something about that that I find really interesting. I mean, Uh, Yeah, obviously, the the Don Draper comparison doesn't work perfectly, although Don Draper, you find him hanging out in Greenwich Village, having a kind of bohemian girlfriend Mm -hmm, on the side mm -hmm. at the beginning, that great moment where he's reading one of my favorite poets, Frank O'Hara's Meditations in an Emergency in a Bar downtown, you know, this sort of sense that he's... um, Like it it wouldn't have been surprising if he'd ended up in a, in a club where Dylan was playing, it would have been kind of nice too. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, right. When they use it in the show, it's not diegetic or anything. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's, it's for the soundtrack because Bob Dylan and that's nothing Don Draper would have had in his home in, Mm -hmm. in 1963. That is not his kind of music. (laughs) Um, So live wise, uh, this, no surprise it has been played a lot Uh, He's done it so far 1,086 times, Mm -hmm. making it certainly one of the most performed songs. He started performing it October of 1962, which is a full half a year before the record ever came out. So he had this, you know, he had this in his repertoire very early on and was playing it. And other than the 10 year gap, from sixty-five to seventy-four, where he essentially wasn't even touring anyway, it has basically never left the repertoire. It has always oh. been uh played here and there, almost usually acoustically. Uh he's has done it electric with electric backing, but I think he generally seems to know that it it, you know, I don't want to say it works better, but the the form that he's more interested in playing it is is acoustically and it gives it that sort of sensitivity. And it's appeared on Every conceivable, it's on, you know, it's on Buddha it's on Before the Flood, Ooh. it's there. Uh, he, this is something I, I harp on all the time. It's on Greatest Hits Volume Two, which you you mentioned, yeah. and uh, that to me feels like that's a indication that Bob just really liked the song because it wasn't a hit. It was B sided with Blown in the Wind. Now it was a hit for other people, but it was it his version was right. not a hit single. But by the fact that he puts it on Greatest Hits, to me says. Uh, that's a great one. Let's let's put it it's, on.
1: Right. It's an, um, not as noticed as it should be. Like, everyone should have mm-hmm. recognized that this is an app, complete, you know, classic. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and mm. of course, uh, Peter, Paul and Mary, as they always did, mm. took his <laughs> song, released it as a single where it became a top 10 hit. So <laughs> Peter, Paul and Mary were just... But- a uh, direct line to Bob's bank account was. was yes, do that. I
1: mean, and why not, right? But yeah. I mean, there's none of it, it. It's such a like I I I've listened to I listened to a couple of covers. I haven't listened to. I'm mean, basically I love his version so much. I don't. I'm not, you know, looking for someone else's version, but um, it just feels like it. It's sort of people will make it to either too kind of bouncy or too kind of get rid of the meanness of it and the kind of mm. melancholy. I don't know. Is that true or not in your experience of the covers?
0: Yeah, I think, I. I you know what? I think a lot of times once a song beca- has become so ingrained in the culture and so immortal as this song is, I think there, it, the meaning of it can get lost and it just becomes, oh, I'm hearing this musician sing this classic song, you know, and that's the context for it. Now, I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, I did listen to some other versions of it. Um, but I think it, it, sometimes that's, yeah. I think the, the melancholy gets lost a little, and I think some people make it sound like a love song, like a straight up mm. love song. Right. Right. Um, speaking of, I mean, although on the the far end of that, you know, one of the covers that I listened to, I remember hearing hearing this on the radio thirty years ago when Mo- my mother had a Motown station, and The Four Seasons covered it, oh, really? and it is the most excruciating thing. I've ever heard. And it was released. It was done apparently by them. Uh, like kind of as a, as a gag because it is. And right. I'm going to play, I'm going pl- to play a clip from it at the end of the show. Okay. And yet that version sold a million copies. So <laughs> some people, they just don't, I don't know. They don't listen to the words. They just hear the tune and they're, there they go.
1: it's such a kind of like, just it's, it's one of those songs though. I mean, he has a bunch, but that you just feel is like floating out there in heaven, waiting to be grabbed. Like you know, it's it, it's got that feeling of like, of course, that song, it's perfect. It feels so. The fact that people might want to cover it a lot and do it in ways that might not seem like they're really getting it, it it's still that great song. You know, it's sort of mm-hmm. so. That's that's really interesting. I'll, I'll look forward to hearing that.
0: Oh boy. Well, no, you really won't. But okay. Uh Yeah. I mean, it's been covered. Johnny Cash covered it. Dolly Parton yeah. covered it. Post Malone before he became right. Post Malone famously covered it. And then I found another one where uh, it was done uh, live on stage between La- uh, Lana Del Rey and Joan Baez. Oh, And um I'm going to have a clip from that one as well. And what's interesting about that is she brings Joan Baez out on stage, which is just really very sweet and terrific. And they mm. sing Diamonds and Rust. And then... You hear Lana Del Rey say something to the effect of, you know, do you want to sing something else for us? And Joan mm-hmm. Baez says, oh, I'm going to play Don't Think Twice. And then Lana Del Rey just walks, because, again, you can see this on, on YouTube. Uh-huh. She just walks away from Joan Baez and, like, sits on a drum and just watches Joan Baez play the song, which I thought was very charming that Lana Del Rey <laughs> at her own concert is like, I'm just going to sit here and watch Joan Baez sing the song. <laughs> it's really, very sweet.
1: That's great. I love. I actually love those moments, and like we're you know since we're recording this right after the the Grammys that happened like last night or two nights mm-hmm. ago, but with um, Tracy Chapman coming up to do Fast Car yeah. with that with the country guy whose name I forget. Like it was so lovely to just see him so excited to be on stage with Tracy Chapman doing this Mm -hmm. amazing song. So that's, you know, sometimes you just have to like bow to the fact that you're on stage with Joan Baez, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and and let her do her things.
0: Yeah. It's really very charming. And he said, he's getting to hear her sing this, this iconic song. And so, yeah, it's always been Bob knows it's, it's one of the greats. It's always been in the repertoire. He last played it in 2019, which is right about when he basically, just you know, turned to kind of the whole concert going into the rough and ratty ways tour. So that it's been right. retired for a little bit, but I think once that's over with, if Bob continues, Holy knock on wood continues touring mm-hmm. after that, I'm sure it will eventually return in, in some form because it's don't think twice. You're all right. You're it's all right. I mean, mm-hmm. you just, when you have a song like that in your repertoire, uh, even, even someone as noticeably as, you know, recalcitrant as Bob, uh, he's going, he's going to play it. Because, you know, it's a brilliant song and he can. And, you know, like I said, even with his current wrecked wheeze of a voice, he can bring a sensitivity to it that he doesn't always with some of his other songs. Sometimes he, as we all know, will just blast his way through some of his classics and it leaves you kind of going, wow, what did he just do to that (laughs) one? But he always, I know this one, he seems to have a sensitivity to it that I think uh, underscores the importance of the song he seems to know that and so i think he generally delivers it with a with a again with the gentleness that uh mm. is fitting the song
1: i mean i've had the sense not just following people i know who've been going you know on social media who've been going to the concerts and everything that the i i that the he, that he's and i guess this also comes from um oh god with shadow kingdom right too which was great like that he's thinking about his songs, like with, with maybe what, what people who aren't as entirely tied into Bob might think of as more respect, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, like he's really like, like, and that's partly why I'm like, God, I wish I'd seen him now on this, this past leg of the tour, but um, you know, just, it it feels like he's doing that uh, a lot more, but I guess you never know what you're going to get. That's part of the, the pleasure of it too.
0: Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like that's the subtitle of every one of his tours. You never know what you're going to get. You know, <laughs> even, even when the set list is the same from night to night, you don't know what you're going to get. That's right. That's right. what it is, you know? So, but yeah, uh, like I said it's, it's don't think twice. It's all right. It's just one of the, it's just really one of the absolute masterpieces. So, well, Pam, um, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking with me about this. This has just been terrific.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely.
0: So, okay, everybody, I want you to stay tuned. I'm going to run a little break and when I come back, I'm going to have a special announcement and we'll see you in a minute. Bye. And we're back. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed question mark uh, that version of don't think twice. It's all right. By the four seasons, I played as much of it as I think any of us could have really stood. Uh, Anyway, uh, thanks to Pam Thurswell for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. So as I mentioned just before, uh, I have a little bit of an announcement about Pod Dylan that I wanted to make uh, here at the end of this episode. And so we're going to jump right to it. And that news is Pod Dylan is coming to an end. When I started this show in 2016, uh, I was absolutely in love with the new medium of podcasting. I had been doing a podcast, a comic book related podcast for five years to that point. But in 2016, we created the Fire and Water Podcast Network and it allowed me and the other founders of the network to have the room to come up with shows about any subject we wanted. And of course, The things of the things I love, Bob Dylan's at the top of that list. So it was a natural thing for me to try and do. So when I started it, I really didn't have any idea in my head of how long it was going to run. I just started doing it. And I I did that with a bunch of my other shows, some of which have ended in the meantime and others are still going. But you know, after not too long, it started becoming a weekly show because it just felt like that was sort of the rhythm that I enjoyed doing doing the show at and... It's been weekly, essentially, for I think six of the last eight years or something like that. So it's and as you you know might imagine, it's a lot of work, and I've enjoyed I've enjoyed it uh, very much. It's been an incredibly rewarding experience. But I will say, in the last couple of years, as my life has changed a little bit, uh, I have gotten the idea that I might want to spend some time uh, doing something else not necessarily even podcasting, but just other things that I've grown interested in and other things that I want to try out as I, of course, am eight years older than I was when I started. So it's always been in the back of my mind, especially in the last two years, that is there an end point to this? Is there a point where I should wrap this up uh, to give myself a chance to try something else? And we have finally gotten to that point. And so, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to wrap pod Dylan up uh on April 6th. The final episode will be Saturday, April 6th. And so in the meantime, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to have some, some great guests, a uh, couple of more new guests and some of my old uh, favorites are going to come by one last time to talk about some, some fun Dylan stuff. And so we're going to have fun for the next roughly two months. And I know that uh probably for, some of you, this is very disappointing because I, the show has a, a nice sized following, and of that, I am deeply, deeply appreciative. And I feel a little sad that I'm maybe disappointing some of you out there that the show is wrapping up, especially when it does seem, I think probably to some of you, awfully sudden. Again, for me, it's not sudden; it's been something that's been in the back of my mind for for a long while. And we are finally going to do this. So, yeah, the the final show will be Saturday. Uh, April 6th, but I did wanted to get it out sort of as soon as I was certain uh, that this was the right path to take is that yeah, Pod Dylan is going to wrap up uh, in its eighth year in about two months. So again, uh, thank you all so much for listening. When I started the show, I never would have imagined that uh, it would have the audience the devoted audience that it has. And I said, I deeply, deeply appreciate everyone who listens to the show and everyone who has subscribed to the show in the last year and shown it some financial support. So I hope that you'll stick with the show until the end. As usual, wrap up where I would normally do, saying you can find the show on uh, Twitter and Blue Sky under Pod Dylan. And if you want to have access to the first 100 episodes of Pod Dylan, you can still subscribe to the show over on FM Pods. because we're part of the FM Podcast Network. Um, Going forward, we're not going to do any more of the uh, subscriber-only episodes, and we're not going to do any more of the free previews. Just the remaining uh, eight or so shows are just going to be accessible to everyone because I want everyone to hear them as we wrap the show up. So thank you so much for listening. Again, big thanks to Pam for coming on and talking about Don't Think Twice It's All Right. That was a great conversation. It was a lot of fun. So that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next week. Bye. What are you gonna, what are you gonna sing first? i sing a Dylan song.
1: Don't think twice.